Uh, I'm going to invite Heather to come. She's going to do our scripture reading from 2nd chap- Samuel chapter 12. She'll read our scripture, and I'll pray, and then we're going to get to work in this story today. Good morning. This is God's word. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich men had very many herds and flocks, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And, with, and he brought it up, and it grew with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. God, we we come to you now. Um, God, we come to you now with our hearts heavy over the brokenness that exists in this good world that you created, this beautiful world that you created. But God, we come to you with hearts that want to be open, not only to uh, share our own experiences of brokenness, the sins that we have committed and the sins that have been committed against us. And God, we want to come with hearts that are hope-filled, hearts that are desirous as we look at this season of Advent, the longing for the, the coming of the Messiah. Jesus, it is for this exact type of brokenness that you have come into the world. So would you help us today God, would you help me today to communicate that which is truthful and that which is helpful? Would you help all of us to be people of the light, to be people of the hope of our Savior Jesus? We pray this all in his good name. Amen. This last week, we as a family watched the movie Elf, and it's one of our favorite Christmas movies as a family, and one particular moment kind of jumped out at me where they're singing the song, Baby, it's cold outside. And kind of thinking about the lyrics of that, on Friday, my wife and I were running some errands, and the song came up in a playlist, but it's a new recording in which they have changed the lyrics. Baby, it's cold outside was actually written by a husband and wife. They used to perform it at, like, parties back in the 19, I think it was 1950s, 1960s, kind of that old school, you know, Hollywood sort of parties. But over the years, recent years, people have noticed that the lyrics sound pretty pressury from the guy to the woman. You guys know what I'm talking about? I probably need to go. I probably shouldn't stay. I should get going. No, 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 you stay. It's okay. It's okay. It's, it's that kind of a vibe. And it's just interesting how fast things can change in our culture where now that song that was once considered kind of a Christmas classic is now having the lyrics rewritten to reflect a different sort of an attitude. I find it interesting that the attitude actually reflects 
the attitude of a secular call. I mean, they're not Christian people largely rewriting these songs. It actually has almost looped back around where the attitude of the culture would match what we would say would be a biblical perspective on sexuality. You know, that, that's called horseshoe theory. You guys ever heard that before? It's like where somebody's so conservative, they accidentally start sounding like a liberal, or someone's so liberal, they accidentally start sounding like a conservative. It's like Hollywood's become so obsessed with, with this idea of sexual propriety. And you almost kind of sound like a Bible-believing Christian here. I was reading an article this week that came across my, my, my Facebook feed, and the article was an interview with a, a star from the show Game of Thrones, which, if you're not familiar with Game of Thrones, um, I'll just say, like, non-Christian guys from my gym laugh about it being, like, basically porn. I literally heard that said to me about two weeks ago. Saturday Night Live made fun of the show for just, you know, having too much nudity in it from Saturday Night Live, uh, but this article was one of the main actresses from it, and she shared some of her experience, and she said the part that kind of jumped out at me, a few things that jumped out at me, one of the things she said was, if that show was going to get made today, there's no way it would fly. In the, in the era of Me Too and all this conversation that we're having as a culture about sexual abuse, that show wouldn't get greenlit today. Friends, I don't need to make the case to you. You're all aware of all of this talk and all of this conversation about the way that, that um, particularly men in positions of power have used that power to harm women and for that, that harm to be done sexually. We see this in, in the media and entertainment business. We see this in politics. And God help us, we see it even in the church where people prey upon others for their own Sexual pleasure. Now, I want you to hear me loud and clear as we talk about this today. The Bible is not anti-sex or sexuality. God created sex. God gave that as a good gift to his people. There are, are whole books of the Bible that are written to celebrate the beauty of God's gift of sex and sexuality. Amen, church? But I remember hearing an analogy Early on in, in ministry, an older pastor used the analogy, he was an insurance agent. He said, you know, you, you, you talk about fire. Fire can be really good or it can be really bad depending on where it is located. Fire is great when it's in your fireplace. Fire is great when it's in your, 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 your stove or your cooktop. Fire is terrible when it's in your, your living room floor. And the analogy holds to sexuality, that sexuality is just this beautiful thing given to us by God to be enjoyed uh, in the covenant of marriage, a husband and a wife, to, to be joined together and to actually have the unbelievable potency of being able to bring a human life into the world. That still just boggles my mind. But when it is brought out of that context, it can bring incredible harm and incredible damage to people. And when you add in this other element of power and authority, I'll just say some of the, the, the most um, painful conversations that I and the other pastors have with people are, are these types of conversations. It, it can be the place of people's deepest shame and deepest brokenness. And I will just say too from the outset, I'm not only speaking to women here because I acknowledge and recognize there are many men who have experienced that. And while it's very shameful for, for women sometimes to speak up about sexual abuse and, and, and it's hard to speak up, sometimes it's maybe even more hard for men just because of the stigma of men are supposed to be tough and not talk about those kinds of things. Now, this story, I need you to look at the text with me and I want to set it up by saying this. The, the, the Hebrew Bible, the storyline of the Hebrew Bible has been building towards something. 
all the way back from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through the book of, of, of Joshua and Judges, and, and the, 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 the text of the Bible has been building something, and it's been building to this desire for a king. The people of God need a king. And it's not gone so well under the judges, and it's, 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 it's really trying to make the point that we need God's people to be ruled by a good king. And you read the book of 1 Samuel, and it starts out with this guy named Saul. The people pick Saul to be a king, but we kind of call that a false start. He was king, but he didn't do a great job. And, and in 1 Samuel 13, the prophet Samuel says to Saul, your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you, Saul, have not kept the Lord's command. And we see that the whole storyline of the Hebrew Bible has been building to this crescendo, this peak, a man named David. David the shepherd boy. David the giant slayer. David the one who goes uh, you know, on the run for his life from, from King Saul, but he writes songs of worship to God and he eventually becomes the king and he unites all 12 tribes of Israel and he is, is building a palace in, in Jerusalem and he's going to have a son who will build a temple. Like it's all reached the peak. It's all reached the crescendo. And in particular, if you read the book of 1 Samuel, it is quite optimistic. It really is uh, an upward trajectory. But when you turn the page and you get into 2 Samuel, it is quite negative. It's a big mess, and it all hinges around this story here that we see in 2 Samuel. And we're going to start in chapter 11. Verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle. It's an interesting line. What time of year it is? Oh, I'd probably go fight somebody. What? <laughs> What it is, is it's saying that, you know, after the winter and the rains, when it's hard to take troops, but it's before the, the late summer and fall, the harvest, like this is when the kings would be like, this is the time to go attack. And so if you go back a few chapters, you see that, that Israel and, and the Ammonites have been at war together. So this is the time of year when battles happen. David sends Joab and servants. He sends all of Israel and there's battling the Ammonites and besieging Rabbah. And then verse one, but David remained at Jerusalem. That's a clue. That's not how it's supposed to be. David is abdicating his responsibility as the kind of commander-in-chief, we could say, of the troops to go lead them in battle. Instead, he stays back in Jerusalem and does not fulfill his duty to go fight with his men. And so it happened late one afternoon, probably two or three o'clock or so before the sun goes down, when David arose from his couch, probably taking a nap instead of being out leading his troops. And he was walking on the roof of the king's house. The king's house would have been higher up on the hill and he would use the roofs, the flat roofs, as kind of an extra area for living, for entertaining. So he's walking on this flat roof. He saw from his roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So David sent, got some servants, inquired about the woman, and one guy said, well, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I've mentioned in this series that these various women, all four of them are either themselves Gentiles or connected to Gentiles. After studying, I'm convinced that Bathsheba is herself Jewish, because it says that she's the, the daughter of Eliam, who is the son of a guy named Ahithophel. And you can read about Ahithophel. He's one of David's uh, advisors. Uh, in fact, later on in the story, Ahithophel is going to turn on David. And many scholars think it has to do with the story that we're reading right here, the way his granddaughter was mistreated. 
but she is married to a guy named Uriah the Hittite. And the Hittites are one of the oldest enemies of Israel. The command was given to drive them out of the land, out of the land of Canaan. But apparently there's at least one guy or one family, this guy Uriah, who converted and said, I want to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. I want to be joined in with the people and, and even married one of the daughters of Israel. If you go back into 1 Samuel, Uriah is actually one of David's like mighty men. You guys remember when David's fleeing for his life and everyone's abandoning him? He's got this small group of just a, you know, a few dozen guys. Uriah's one of them. Like they've been rolling deep for years. This would be one of his most trusted commanders, one of his most trusted captains. That's who we're talking about, this guy named Uriah. So David, verse four. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. So much damage in so few words. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. I'll explain more about that in a moment. And then she returned back to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent word and told David... I am pregnant. Now, summarizing what happens after this, after this word comes to David, he, he begins a plot to try to, to kind of cover up what it is that he did. And so the first thing he does is he sends for Uriah, who's out in the battlefield. He sends, Uriah, I need you to come back home, and, and I need you to give me a report of the war. And, and while Uriah is there, he starts to tell him, like, hey, you need to go wash your feet and go spend some time at home. Maybe, you know, hang out with your wife a little bit. He's, he's trying to get Uriah to go be intimate with Bathsheba so that he can cover up this pregnancy that he has caused. But you read the story and you see that Uriah is only faithful. He does not leave the king's palace. He sleeps at the palace. He won't go home and spend time with his wife because he says, how can I do that? How can I go relax when the men are out at war without me? David even tries to get him drunk one night. He gets him really drunk and Uriah still will not go. He's only faithful to David. And so David conspires to have him put to death. He sends a message to Joab and he says, make sure you put him up at the front of the lines. Make sure he's right there by the wall where the fighting is the fiercest. The word comes back and Uriah is killed. David does all of that to cover up what he's already done. Verse 26, it says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Now, just in case we were unclear about the Lord's disposition towards all this that has happened. The text tells us the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12, so at some point, we don't know exactly how long, the Lord sent Nathan to David Nathan's been the, the prophet who has been the closest spiritual advisor for all of David's reign. And Nathan comes and says, I'd like to tell you a story, O king. Once upon a time, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. 
And the rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little female lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It's, it's like beloved and precious and part of the family. You know, if you're a farmer and you have lots of flocks and herds, they're just kind of out there doing their thing. But if you only have the one, you, you bring it in, it's bottle fed, you pet it, you treat it like a part of the family. That's the portrait that's being painted here. He used to eat of his food and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him, deeply beloved. Now, one day a traveler came to the rich man and the rich man did not want to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare it, to kill it and cook it for the guest. So he went and he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Look at the hypocrisy of David here. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Is he right? He is right. And then he, he, he almost like backpedals a little bit in verse 6. Well, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Fourfold is the instruction that is given in the law of Moses. You can go back and you can read it. It's in the book of Exodus. If a man steals a sheep, he shall pay back four sheep for the one that he has stolen. Now, Nathan confronts David, says, you're the man, and and the story continues on from there. But I want to pause for a moment, and I want to deal with something head-on, because in most of the portrayals of this story of David and Bathsheba, there's an inaccurate picture that is painted for us. You can see this reflected in the art and the paintings of the Middle Ages. You can see this reflected in the popular notions and the way that the term Bathsheba, the name Bathsheba is even thrown around. Oh, she's a real Bathsheba. You can see this in many of the commentaries that I consulted for this sermon. And the idea is that Bathsheba is some sort of a temptress, some sort of a seductress who lured and enticed King David in. And so she is to blame for what happens after this, if not entirely, at least in part. And friends, I want to deal with this question. Was Bathsheba sexually assaulted? And I intend to make the case here clearly from the text that the answer is yes. I've got seven reasons why. The first one is this. It's the way that she is portrayed in the literature. The way that she is written about in this story. In in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, she is almost entirely passive. She has no active voice. The only thing she communicates is I'm pregnant. And if you look at the way that the story about the lamb is written, uh, she's, she's portrayed as this innocent, more or less spotless lamb. Richard Bauckham, who's an Old Testament scholar, says that Bathsheba is portrayed in 2 Samuel 11 in an entirely passive way. Wainwright's comment, he's referencing another scholar, that the wife of Uriah comes to David, one of the few actions attributed to her, is misleading in that even this act was hardly chosen. Faced with the command of the king, Bathsheba could choose only obedience or certain disaster. Number two, there are some textual clues that have to do with the word roof and have to do with the word bath. The first one, roof. Who does the Bible say is on their roof? Clearly, who's on their roof? Look at the text. David. 
There is nothing in the text. We, we see these paintings and these portrayals as Bathsheba standing up in some prominent public place, completely undressed, taking this bath. The text tells us that David is the one on the roof. But even maybe more telling is the word for bathing. The Hebrew word there is rahatz. It's used 72 times in the Old Testament, and it is translated 40 of those 72 times as washing. Not bathing. Sometimes bathing, sometimes washing. For the people of the ancient Near East, they didn't have bathtubs and showers like we have. The Holman Bible Dictionary explains it. It says, Biblical languages make no distinction between washing and bathing, primarily because the dry climate of the Middle East prohibited bathing except on special occasions or where there was an available source of water. You didn't just have plumbing running into your house, right? Therefore... Where the word bathe occurs in the biblical text, partial bathing is usually intended. Partial bathing is usually intended. It is probably safe to say that the masses of people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament had neither the privacy nor the desire for bathing as we know it today. So it is not explicitly stated in the text that she's completely undressed or doing something seductive. She's washing maybe just her feet. There's an archaeological reason. And when you study and you you read about what they've discovered archaeologically, a couple of things. First of all, you would discover that King David's house would have been at a higher elevation. Jerusalem's built onto a hill, and his house would have been at a higher elevation. And there's only really one house that would have the vantage point possible to look in on someone else who is bathing. Most scholars will say that if the bathing is not done in a public place like a river or what's called a mikvah, these ceremonial public baths with steps that would be near the temple, most people would have done their bathing in kind of a semi-private inner court not up on your rooftop. I don't know if you've traveled to other parts of the world, but privacy, especially in the less developed world, is pretty hard to come by. Traveled to places, rural places in Mexico, rural places in Uganda. I've seen this with my own eyes. There are times where people are either relieving themselves or bathing, and you're kind of, oh, it's not quite as private as we're used to having it happen in the Western world. Only David's palace would have been high enough to have that vantage point, and he should have been off to war, not being a peeping Tom in the afternoon. Number four, there's a religious reason why I think we can say, yes, Bathsheba was assaulted, because she is not portrayed as a seductress. In fact, what does the text say that she is doing with this washing? It says she is purifying herself. She is obeying the law of God that is found in Leviticus 15, where God gave commandments that women, after their regular monthly period, should ceremonially wash themselves because blood is very important. And this is a way to, to, to have a practice of saying uh, it's, it's purity before the Lord. I know it seems kind of strange to us, but it's one of the commandments of God. So Bathsheba here is explicitly said to be in the text following the law of God. Number five, power dynamics. Power dynamics are real 
Every single one of you, every single one of you have had some experience in life where maybe somebody in authority, a boss, uh, you know, somebody, a leader said something, did something, and you maybe kind of wanted to speak up and you, you wanted to, but you didn't. I, w- I would bet money that every one of you have had some sort of experience like that. How much more so in the ancient Near Eastern world, how much more so when the king sends for you? Proverbs 20, verse 2, Solomon, the son born to Bathsheba, says, the king's fury is like a lion's roar. To rouse his anger is to risk your life. You don't just get to say no to the king. Number six, and maybe most compellingly, is, let me ask you this question. In the story that the prophet Nathan tells, and in the rest of chapter 12, who alone is held accountable? Who alone is held accountable? Only David. There are laws in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus, that say if two people come together in consensual adultery, both are to be put to death. Who alone is held accountable? Not the innocent lamb, the rich ruler. Only David earns the rebuke and the chastisement from the Lord. And 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 maybe Number seven, just the ensuing chapters, you see how this sin of David leads to ongoing sexual violations from his own sons, and the whole thing becomes a complete and utter mess. I had a professor in seminary who wrote an article in which he made the case that David, in chapter 11 and chapter 12, broke all ten commandments in this one act. Coveting, adultery, theft, murder. You can go down the list. Maybe that's a conversation for your homes or your community groups this week. But either way, he messed up big and he is held accountable before the Lord for this. Friends, it is on these grounds from the text itself that I say to you, yes, we have often thought wrongly about Bathsheba, that she's some temptress or seductress who who lured David in, in which uh, case she caused this whole mess, when in fact it is David himself the one who is described as the man after God's own heart who absolutely messed all this up. Let me ask a question briefly about David. What what happens for David next? Well, we can see pretty clearly in the text that David experiences a deep repentance. He cries out, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't push the blame. He doesn't let me think about it for a while. He owns it. I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51, the, 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 the subscription of this psalm is given to us about David in his prayer of repentance for what he did in the taking of Bathsheba. And he is crying out, Lord, my sin is always before me. Will you wash me clean from my iniquity? Will you wash me clean from my transgressions? We could say a lot of things about David, both good and bad, but one thing I think is clear from the text of the scripture, he's a good repenter. And he is brokenhearted genuinely before the Lord over this great evil. And in the text, we see that because of that brokenheartedness, he does receive costly mercy. He deserves to die. And the prophet Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. There is great mercy that is given for David. And and friends, let me say this. In our current cultural climate, it might actually be harder 
to look at someone like David, who is, if, 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 if this is true, and this reading of the text is true, that he is uh, an assailant, we might not want him to receive mercy. And friends, I want to say to you that if your definition of God's mercy is not also big enough to include mercy and grace for someone who has committed an act of sexual assault, then you need to rethink your definition of God's mercy and grace. With that said, there are painful consequences. Even with God's grace, even with God's mercy, Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed, you have scorned the Lord. And the sentence is the child that is born will die. In fact, if you keep reading the rest of 2 Samuel on into 1 Kings, remember David's fourfold He needs to pay back fourfold. Guess how many sons of David die over the rest of this story? A child, Amnon, Absalom, Abimelech. Four sons of David die as a result. Sometimes we can be forgiven by the Lord. We can have mercy and grace from on high, but there will still be ongoing consequences for the sinful actions that we have committed. Charles Spurgeon says, David was forgiven, but from that day, the sword never departed from his house. God let him know that although he was pardoned, some of the results of his sin still remained. The guilt of it was gone, as Nathan said, the Lord hath put away thy sin, but the evil effect of it was still manifest. And that must be dealt with by the Lord's chastening rod. What a sad change came over David's life from this time. The earlier part of David's life was full of music and dancing, and the latter part had far more of mourning and lamentation in it. After his great fall, he had to go softly all the rest of his days, and his dying testimony, though full of faith, was marred by the regret, although my house be not so with God. Friends, there can be mercy and grace, and yet there can still be consequences lived out. So what about Bathsheba? I really would love for the story to make this really dramatic sort of Hollywood turn. You know, those Hallmark Christmas movies where everything just gets better, but the reality is the Bible's just too honest because Bathsheba's life is marked by even hardship after this. Obviously, the death of the child that comes dealing with David's family drama and the infighting in the Civil War. I was even reading, the, Bi- the, the Bible doesn't say anything about her attitude during this, but in 2 Kings 1, there's the kind of weird story where David is, he's old and he can't stay warm, and so they go, his servants find a, a it says a beautiful young virgin to just lay with him and keep him warm. And the, the, the author of Second, or of 1 Kings, I should say, tells us, well, they, didn't, they weren't intimate, but she still like laid with him to keep him warm. It's just odd. It's not good. I don't think it's presented to us in a positive light. I just wonder what Bathsheba was thinking about having to watch that and live through that. Friends, sometimes the, the experiences of life are very hard, and then we think maybe it'll get better, and Our culture loves to say a message of, oh, just keep going. Things will always get better. That's not always the case. I do think, however, though, in this story, in in chapter 12, verses 24 through 25, I do think we see a moment where she experiences true grace. Look at the verses of, of this chapter. It says, Then David 
comforted his wife. And he went in and lay with her and she bore a son. Now I want to pause for a minute here because it may be hard to even wrap your mind around receiving comfort from the one that caused you such harm. The word there that's translated as comforted is is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's sometimes translated as remorse or regret. It's sometimes translated as relent. It's sometimes translated as repent. It can be translated as repent. It's used about a hundred times in the Old Testament. I don't want to go too far out on a limb here, but I think in this section we see an experience of grace from David. I think with David's genuine repentance, I think he genuinely humbled himself before her. I deeply regret what I've done. I am deeply sorry about what I've done. There's a a softening of the spirit from David. And then in that comforting, as they come together now as husband and wife, a child, another child is given to her. And it says the Lord loved this child So much so that God prompted the prophet Nathan to go and deliver a message. Hey, Bathsheba, the Lord really loves you and really loves your son. In fact, your son's name is Solomon. You call him Solomon. But God says, I call him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. I think that experience of grace does something where when we encounter Bathsheba later, we encounter Bathsheba in 1 Kings 1 and 2, and now all of a sudden she's a little bit different. She's got some agency and she's got some voice. In 1 Kings, you can read there's, they're fighting over who's going to be the king and David's old and he's kind of losing control of everything. Bathsheba goes to the king and says, my lord the king, you made a promise. You need to get it together. You need to put Solomon on the throne. Adonijah's acting up. Do what you said you were going to do. It's a very different Bathsheba. It's a very, this is not the passive voiceless taken by the king. It's, hey king, get it together. And I, I, I don't, I can't speculate too much, but I just, I think there's something of this experience of grace. There's something about the passage of time, some healing, some whatever, where now she has agency and voice. And then the last time that we encounter Bathsheba in the scriptures, she is being given the ultimate honor of being one of the far off great grandmothers of the Messiah of Israel, Jesus himself. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I, I, don't, I don't think there's any way that Bathsheba could have known that she would be an ancestor of the Messiah. And I really don't know if there's any way she could have known that her far-off great-grandson Jesus would show up and would treat women with such dignity and such grace. I was looking at the, the verse in, in Luke where Luke says it actually a couple times. He says, the twelve and the women. That in Jesus' entourage, obviously he has his 12, his, the 12 disciples, and, you know, John and Peter and James and all those guys. But it says, the women. Like there's this group of women who are included as disciples and followers of Jesus who are given close access. Women like Mary from Magdala, who has herself gotten quite bad rap over church history. Women like Joanna or Susanna or Mary of Clopas or one of like 11 other Marys who are mentioned. We don't exactly know who they all are, but Jesus had women who followed him around. Jesus met with the Samaritan woman at the well who was not only an outcast for being a Samaritan, but she had had five men that she'd been with. And what does Jesus do? He ministers grace to her in such a way that she goes back and evangelizes the whole town and says, you got to come meet this guy. 
Or the woman who's in the Gospel of John caught in the act of adultery and the religious leaders bring her out and say, she's sinful, she deserves to die. And Jesus steps in and ministers grace to her. And he says, I don't condemn you. Now go, leave your life of sin. Friends, this is Jesus. This is the, the, the great, great, great grandson of Bathsheba, the savior of the world who comes in his life associating with those who are rejected and despised and considered unclean by the rest of society. He takes their uncleanness upon himself and makes them clean. And this happens at the cross, the place where Jesus not only knows our shame, but Jesus takes our shame. Let me, let me say this. A lot of the time when we talk about the cross, we talk about the cross as being punishment for sin. And that it is. But there's another way that we can look at the cross. It's not just the sins that we have committed, but the sins that have been committed against us. And Jesus was greatly sinned against in all of this whole experience of the cross. See, Jesus, like Bathsheba, knew what it was like to have soldiers come and just take him where he did not want to go. Jesus knew the experience, like Bathsheba, of being voiceless because the the scripture says, like a lamb before its shearers was silent. And, And Jesus even knows the physical shame because a crucifixion was an incredibly violating experience. It's not only that he was beaten, it's not only that he was scourged, it's not only that he was crucified, he was stripped naked publicly. And sometimes we have this picture in our minds of the cross. You know, it's like 20, 30 feet up in the air. That's not archaeologically true. Crosses were down low, barely elevated above the eye line and the sight line of the people so that people could walk past and mock and spit right directly in your face. Friends, Jesus knows the deepest shame so that he could be a fountain of cleansing not only for our own sins, but for the sins that have been committed against us. Jesus went to the cross to take on our shame. And I was thinking about that as I was, I was looking at Ephesians 5, this, this verse where you know, it talks about husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I, you, know, you, you hear this in, in marriage stuff, but I, I, I said, for, hey, for the... For the um, just gray out those words. Like, pretend like they're not there for just a second. Husbands, love your wives as... okay. Listen to this. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. One scholar I read said, such an interesting metaphor for someone as strong and as powerful as Jesus the Messiah to be described in language of doing laundry. Something that is traditionally more associated with women. This is what the Messiah is doing. He's doing laundry. He's washing. He's cleansing. He's washing his people. The second David did perfectly what the first David failed to do lay down his life for his bride. And friends, that's us. Friends, that's us. I'm thankful to be part of the bride of Christ that's been loved by a husband like this, the second David, the great-grandson of Bathsheba. I want to say a few things 
to all of us as, as I bring this to a conclusion. First of all, I want to say to those of you who have experienced abuse, I want to say very clearly, your voice really matters. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe primarily speaking to women, but I'm, I'm also speaking to men. That part of the healing process begins when, when you're able to be empowered to find your voice, to say to somebody, hey, this happened, this is my experience, this is my story. You do have agency even if you don't feel like you do. Number two, I want to encourage you to seek out safe people. And I know it may be hard to believe, but they're there. There, there are people who are safe. There are people who love you. Maybe this is a counselor or a pastor or a close trusted friend, somebody who you've seen their life over a period of time and you can tell that they're a, a trustworthy person or somebody else that you know who has met with a trustworthy person. You've got to seek out somebody who's a safe person. And number three, I invite you to drink deeply of Jesus' grace. Just because you find your voice and just because you start to talk with someone doesn't mean that everything's going to instantly get better. In fact, experience would show that oftentimes it gets a little bit harder because kind of digging up some of those old wounds or those old scars can be incredibly painful. But I do know this. If I know anything at all, if I know anything at all, it's there is tremendous grace to be found in the arms of our Savior Jesus. There's so much grace to be had. There's so much healing. It, it might take a lifetime like Bathsheba. It might take a whole lifetime. Things probably won't be neat and tidy, hallmark-like, but we who trust in Christ know that one day after his return, his second advent, all things will be made new. And I've heard it said, I, I like it, somebody said once that Jesus will be the only one with scars in heaven. For all the rest of us, maybe that's not been your experience, but you want to be an advocate, you want to be a help. This is, this is kind of various thoughts maybe in closing that come out of this. So some will apply to some and some things won't apply directly. But number one, I want to encourage you, seek to be a safe person. People who have been hurt need safe people and you can learn to be a safe person. Uh, maybe one simple uh, just uh, tip that I could give to you is when someone shares something with you, don't react big. Someone shares something about hurt or pain and, and, and you, you go, oh my God, what is that story? I mean, don't do that. Hey, I'm so sorry. Oh man, my heart is broken for you. I don't, even, I don't even have the right words to say, but can I just love you and tell you that Jesus loves you? And just start there. Just because someone tells you something that's shocking doesn't mean you have to act shocked, Right? Because if the gospel is true, we're free to live very transparent lives and we're free to put our hope in Jesus that he is our great healer, okay? So seek to be a safe person. Some of you are naturally that way. God bless you. Some of you are less naturally that way. Um, but I actually can be a testimony as somebody, as you can tell, I, I talk a lot, I'm high energy, but over the course of, of being a pastor and various training things, I've learned how to be a lot better at this than I was when I was younger. And so I can say, not all of you are wired to be like a, a great, you know, sympathetic counselor, but you can grow and you can get better in it. Number two, I want to, as strongly as I can possibly say, to encourage you to annihilate sexual sin. 
This is King David's lustful heart that led to all of this pain and all of this drama and all of this stuff. And and some of us can sit in here and we can maybe feel a little bit morally superior because, well, I've never assaulted someone. Okay, but the Apostle Paul writes that among the people of God, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Earlier, I referenced this this TV show and this, this actress who was being interviewed and she talks about how early on she would go into the bathroom and would just cry her eyes out at being asked by these producers to do certain scenes. And then she would say, oh, this is what we got to do. You're an actress, you're a big girl, get it together. And she would go out and she would do these certain scenes. And some of you might be able to like kind of sit on your moral high horse and say, well, I don't look at pornography. I don't do those sorts of things. But you watch TV shows that are just full of that kind of content. You entertain lustful fantasies in your heart. And I'm here to tell you, put it to death by God's grace sooner than later. Number three, for those of you who are parents, grandparents, uncles and aunts, kids ministry leaders, let's raise up some respectful boys. Let's raise up a generation of young men who are not weaklings or, or milk toast or just a bunch of, you know, softies. No, let's raise up strong young men who know that their strength is found the closer that they draw to Jesus, who only ever used his strength to protect and empower and to build up others, especially women. Some of you are parents of boys. Raise them up. Practice repentance, practice humility, practice getting into the word of God. Don't let them believe the cultural picture of what manhood is. Let's train our boys to be more like Jesus. And for those of you who are parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts of young women, let's raise up some empowered daughters. No, I don't mean empowered the way the culture seeks to empower women. I remember, I don't remember who I was talking to, but I remember having this, this conversation, this observation, and I've thought it for years, and they put it into words, and they said, isn't it interesting that what we champion as empowered women basically involves actresses and celebrities, you know, women who take off their clothes? It's like the cultural definition of an empowered woman is women doing exactly what lustful men want them to do. How horrible is that? no. Sisters, I'm talking about women who are empowered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Women who know that their identity and their beauty are, are, are found in Jesus Christ and who he says that they are and that women, you are, are, are beautiful and you are strong in Christ Jesus and that you've been given 100% equal share of the inheritance of the riches of the kingdom of heaven because our Messiah Jesus died and rose again to invite us all into the family of God, male and female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. We're all one before him. How great is that? So if you got sons, if you got daughters, let's raise them up to know and to love Jesus. There's so much more that could be said. I know this is a lot. What we're going to do here is we're going to go into a time of singing and worship. We're going to go into a time of celebrating the Lord's table. I'm just going to invite you. If you need to just sit for a while, you can do that. We're, I'm going to pray. We're going to eat and drink and receive of the grace of the Lord. We're going to sing Let's bring all of our hearts before the Lord right now. God, I thank you for the truthfulness of your word that doesn't shy away from these difficult things. God, maybe many of us have have tried to, to shy away from these things for far too long. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask and we pray that you would give us the courage to bring these things into the light. 
God, even now as, as Pastor Kyle leads us in communion, would you help us to experience your grace at the table, your body broken, your blood shed for us that was given for our wholeness and our cleansing. God, as we sing and as we worship and as we pray, would you help us to sense your love for us even in this moment? We give this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. Um, I'm not sure how this message this morning, this this text has hit each of you individually, but uh, I know we all come from different backgrounds and we all have uh, different life experiences. And like Bathsheba, we've all been sinned against. And it's easy, or maybe not easy to confess our sin as Christians, but um, we we understand that we are sinners. We understand that we sin against a holy God, and we understand uh, that we you know we can acknowledge our sin, um, but we don't spend a lot of time thinking about how we've been sinned against. And so this morning, I just want to continue this um, this theme that uh, this message is is teaching that we have been sinned against, and that Jesus can relate. Uh, the first verse that we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 11 talks about Jesus being the night that he was portrayed, uh, betrayed. And so Jesus can relate to our pain, our hurt, our woundings. And I believe that this morning as we reflect on Jesus' death, on his sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, that he also wants to meet with some of us who have been hurt and who have been sinned against. And I believe there's healing for, uh, for those of us who open our hearts to that. So let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. It says, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread... Or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we have uh, this call to reflect and to remember what Jesus has done. His uh, broken body, his shed blood in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. But then there's also this call from Paul to examine our hearts. Uh, For some of us, maybe that sin that we need to go to God, we need to bring before God, and we need to ask for his forgiveness. Or maybe it's sin that we've sinned against somebody else, that we need to take that to them. And so maybe this morning you you abstain from taking communion. You you hold off on that to to go reconcile with that brother or sister and, and ask for their forgiveness. Or maybe it's sin that's been done against you, and you need to just bring that before the Lord this morning. Bring your brokenness to him and know that he can relate to you. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, I'll give us, you know, I'll pray for us, and then whenever you feel led to, go ahead and take the elements, uh, the bread and the cup, or take the elements, and then as Aaron said a little, a little bit ago, feel free to take some time and just reflect quietly, just pray, uh, and then whenever you're ready, go ahead and stand and join us as we sing. Let me pray. Father, God, we are so grateful for um, the opportunity each week to gather as the church, to worship you, to uh, confess sin, to uh, sing joyfully. Thank you for the gospel, the hope that we as followers of Jesus have. Lord, as we take time now to to pause and to reflect on this truth, the gospel, um, I pray also that we would reflect on the hurts and the wounds that uh, have been done to us 
God, you are a compassionate God, and you care about each and every one of us and everything that has happened, every broken thing that goes on in this world. And so, Lord, I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, would you do a work in each of our hearts that only you can do this morning. We give this time to you now and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.